So our, our rounding out the first uh, part of our session before the break, um, we're very pleased to have uh, Suman Srinivasi, who is um, a, a professor at, uh, again, at uh, Harvard MGH and uh, uh, in the Division of Endocrinology. And we've asked her to sort of give us an update on these um, these new uh, GLP-1 agonists, and we know of them. We see the commercials on television until we uh, want to turn off the television. Um, and But at least now we'll hear from somebody other than uh, a person singing a jingle. Um, so, uh, Suman, we welcome you, and uh, the floor is yours. We'll need you to, yes, yeah, share. Perfect. Great, thank you. All right, well, thank you so much. I'm really delighted to be here today to highlight these medications, the GLP-1 receptor agonists, um, which have shown to be, shown some promise in numerous healthcare applications and may have some relevance to our population with HIV. Our learning objectives for today's talk are provided here, which you may be familiar with. And so we'll really address those learning objectives today as follows. We'll first set the background by reviewing weight gain among persons with HIV. Next, we'll highlight the therapeutic potential of these medications in diabetes and weight loss, um, focusing really on what's known in the general population. We'll then further discuss the importance of body composition and weight loss, and after which um, we'll review the current studies of what's known of these medications in HIV. And finally, we'll touch upon off-target benefits of these medications. So a lot here to learn. Let's start off, as I mentioned, by setting the background. So weight gain and obesity has been increasing in prevalence among persons with HIV. It has generally been shown that weight gain is associated with ART initiation and generally does not improve with switching ART regimens. Um, large cohort studies have really allowed us to gain further insight into this. The NA Accord study demonstrated that after three years of ART, almost one-fifth of those who were normal weight transitioned into be to becoming overweight, and one-fifth of those who were overweight transitioned into becoming obese. So the advanced study um, demonstrated that ART-treated individuals, um, women with HIV, actually tended to gain more weight than men with HIV, really pointing to some sex-specific differences. And a pooled analysis of um, a few randomized controlled trials of treatment-naive individuals initiating ART, um, data of which is shown here in the graphs, reported a higher um, weight gain um, in those receiving INSTI or TAF-containing regimens um, compared to those receiving TDF, abacavir, or zidubidine. Of these INSTIs, dalutegravir and bictegravir appear to be the most consistently implicated with weight gain. And um, studies have shown, um, just to point out, additional risk factors associated with weight gain include a low CD4 count, high viral load, and black race. So there are serious consequences um, for weight gain among persons with HIV. In this recent study of participants on various ART, there was a mean weight gain of 3.6 kilograms over 48 weeks. And among those who gained greater than 10% of their weight gain, um, as shown here on the right, there was a two-fold increased risk of developing diabetes and metabolic syndrome, and a one-and-a-half-fold increase in the risk of a cardiometabolic event. 
And complementary to this, uh, participants who lost more than 5% of their baseline weight had a lower risk of incident metabolic syndrome, really pointing to the impact of weight loss. So while lifestyle intervention should always be advised for our patients, um, there has been limited efficacy for lifestyle modification uh, towards significant weight loss in HIV. Um, in this regard, really other therapeutic strategies are needed. So glucagon-like peptide 1, or GLP-1, is an incretin peptide hormone secreted from the small intestine uh, following food ingestion. And GLP-1 receptor agonists, or GLP-1-RAs, are a class of medication that mimic this physiologic GLP-1 and act on receptors in the pancreas in a glucose-dependent fashion uh, to stimulate insulin secretion and inhibit glucagon release, both effectively contributing to its glucose-lowering effects. And due to these mechanisms, the GLP-1-RAs were leveraged for the treatment of diabetes. And studies conducted for diabetes showed additional benefit of weight loss um, and then these medications were more directly assessed for their potential as an obesity medication. Um, GLP-1-RAs also act on the brain to suppress appetite and the gut to slow gastric emptying, thereby leading to increased satiety, uh, mechanisms of which may account for their utility in obesity. So these medications act on many other systems. In the heart, they've been shown to provide cardioprotection, um, and improve endothelial function in the muscle. They increase glucose uptake. They act in the kidney to increase diuresis and naturesis. They also act in the fat to decrease lipogenesis and increase lipolysis. And in the liver, they've been shown also to decrease liver fat. So taken together, there may be a wide range of benefits to these medications, which are still really being investigated further. So listed here are the many GLP-1-RAs that are FDA approved and can be prescribed. You may be familiar with semaglutide, liraglutide, and dulaglutide. The majority of these medications are given in the subcutaneous form. Um, the exception of this is semaglutide in which there's an oral formulation, but it is only utilized for an indication of diabetes at this time. These are given either once daily or once weekly, um, the medications need to be slowly titrated to achieve maximum dosing due to their gastrointestinal side effects. And of note, subcutaneous semaglutide and liraglutide are the only GLP-1-RAs um, that are prescribed for weight loss, as shown here in yellow. Um, semaglutide and liraglutide are each respectively marketed under different names, um, depending on the indication for weight loss or diabetes. And though the active ingredient remains the same, you'll need to prescribe them according to their indication. Um, they're also, they are also given at higher doses for weight loss. So um, this chart shows the efficacy of these medications on A1C and the benefits specific to those with diabetes. On average, there's about a 1 to 1.5% reduction in A1C and possibly up to two points with semaglutide. Based on concerns about cardiovascular safety of diabetes medications in general in the past, and more specifically, I'm alluding to rosiglitazone, um, the FDA now requires actually large cardiovascular outcome trials for all new diabetes therapies. So as such, we have data related to this on these medications. And rather than causing a concern, um, the majority of these medications actually unexpectedly showed a benefit to CV mortality among those with existing or high-risk um, CVD in this diabetes population. So this is an important nuance that we do not yet understand 
um, the CVD mortality benefit in lower risk populations or those without known cardiovascular disease. But there does appear to be an advantage to patients who have a known history. Um, semaglutide, liraglutide, and dulaglutide have also shown additional nephropathy benefit, which is quite nice. So what about the efficacy of these different GLP-1 RAs on weight loss and those um, with no known diabetes? The STEP-8 trial helped answer these questions by comparing semaglutide and liraglutide, which are, again, are the only two GLP-1 RAs approved for weight loss. Um, and they studied um, overweight and obese individuals compared to placebo, and the largest mean weight change occurred in the semaglutide group, providing almost two and a, to two and a half times more weight loss at 16% compared to 6% in terms of a reduction um, comparing semaglutide versus liraglutide. Um, and this translated to an absolute mean change of body weight of 15 versus seven kilograms, so quite a bit. Um, in this regard, we really think of semaglutide as the more potent um, GLP-1 RA for weight loss. Um, we see here that there were overall larger proportions of individuals achieving greater than 10, 15, and 20% weight loss with the semaglutide compared to the liraglutide. So as previously mentioned, there was an unexpected reduction in CV mortality in the GLP-1-RAs in the diabetes population. So this then prompted the conduct of such studies to be performed in obesity as well. And the SELECT trial um, helped us answer this question by assessing CV outcomes in obesity among those with a BMI greater than or equal to 27 with pre-existing cardiovascular disease again and no known diabetes. Um, patients were randomized to semaglutide subcutaneous um, versus placebo. And the mean duration of exposure in the study was about three years. The primary endpoint was a composite of death from CV causes, non-fatal MI, and non-fatal stroke. And the results showed an overall 20% um, CV risk reduction with the use of semaglutide. So this is quite impressive that you have a medication here with dual benefits on weight and CV protection, even in the absence of diabetes. And this again is among those without known, um, or sorry, with known CVD. We do not yet know how these data extend to individuals without known heart disease, but really this could have far reaching implications to the HIV population um, who we know to have a twofold increased risk of heart disease. So given these data, the current indications for GLP-1-RAs were derived. It's important to note these indicate that these medications are not used for type 1 diabetes. Um, in type 1 diabetes, the underlying pathology is insulin deficiency versus insulin resistance, as in type 2 diabetes. And part of the mechanism of action of these medications really relies on insulin secretion, and this is impaired in type 1 diabetes. So when used for type 2 diabetes, this class of medication um, ideally should be given to those with established um, atherosclerotic CVD or ASCVD or kidney disease, regardless of A1C. Um, and for those without established um, ASCVD or kidney disease, they can be used when the A1C is greater than nine or when the A1C is less than nine, but when weight gain is a concern in these patients. In obesity, the medication can be used if the BMI is greater than 30 um, or if the BMI is greater than 27 with a weight-related comorbidity. And really these patients need to have demonstrated a failure of comprehensive lifestyle um, prior to initiation of these medications. 
And studies to um, specific to HIV will really help inform us whether these you know, indications should be modified and tailored specifically to our population. So as mentioned, um, the oral preparation of semaglutide is the only FDA approved, um, uh, well, for, it was only FDA approved for diabetes and up to a dose of 14 milligrams. Um, it is not indicated for obesity. Um, however, the OASIS trial went on to evaluate the oral preparation for weight loss and at much higher doses. So they included individuals with a BMI greater than 30 or a BMI greater than 27 with a rate-related complication. Um, those with diabetes were excluded again, and they were randomized to oral semaglutide, 50 milligrams versus placebo. And the results showed a mean weight reduction of 15% versus 2% in the semaglutide PO versus placebo groups which is really on par um, with the reduction seen with the subcutaneous formulation as well, keeping in mind that this was a much higher dose of the oral form. Um, the oral version was um, limited here, it looks like by gastrointestinal side effects with a majority of participants reporting these symptoms. And in an exploratory analysis, there was also a higher reduction in um, HSCRP which is really quite interesting, um, 57 versus 14% in the semaglutide versus placebo groups. And um, while any anti-inflammatory potential of GLP-1 RAs are really yet to be elucidated, this could be, you know, this would certainly add to, to its broad potential as we've been talking about. As of now, um, semaglutide 50 milligrams oral is still under investigation. Uh, but it could be considered a future alternative to sub-Q injections. So really stay tuned as we learn more about this. All right, so potential side effects to be aware of include injection site um, reactions with the subcutaneous form. Um, there are, these are anti-hyperglycemic medications. Um, however, the risk of hypoglycemia is generally low and may be more likely to occur when used in combination with other diabetes medications, such as sulfonylureas, insulin, and the glenides. Um, unfortunately, gastrointestinal symptoms really preclude many patients from being able to take these medications. It has been reported sometimes in up to half of patients in the studies. Um, as highlighted before, a slow, titratial, slow titration of the medication is useful as symptoms may subside with tolerance of the medication. Um, pancreatitis can occur, um, and we generally do not use it in those with a prior history of pancreatitis. Um, they can also lead to biliary disease and acute renal insufficiency has been reported, but is quite rare and maybe really compounded more so in the setting of the, the GI side effects and dehydration and hypovolemia. Um, there is a black box warning to be aware of with regards to a personal or family history of medullary thyroid cancer. And that's really been driven mostly by data found in rodent studies. There have, just speaking of malignancy, there have been some concerns raised over potential malignancy risk extending beyond medullary thyroid cancer. Um, however, really several meta-analyses indicated that GLP-1-RAs do not increase malignancy risk. And the step three and four trials went on to report that the incidence of malignancy um, was 1.1 versus 0.4 um, among semaglutide versus placebo groups. And an additional study went on to mine the FDA AE reporting database. And while there were some signals detected with certain tumors as, as listed here, the study similarly corroborated that GLP-1 RAs 
really do not cause a disproportionate increase in tumor cases, um, which is reassuring. So GLP-1-RA combination medications are rapidly evolving as well. Um, and you've probably heard of these, and though not the focus today, it is good to develop more familiarity with them. And really by combining the action profiles of multiple um, gastrointestinal hormones, this is thought to have synergistic metabolic effects. Um, there's some level of complexity to combining all of these hormones as their actions may not all be in the same direction. Um, so two additional hormones of interest really right now are glucose-dependent insulinotropic polypeptide, or GIP, and glucagon. So on the chart to the right here, you'll see that GIP, similar to GLP-1, increases insulin secretion, but differs in its actions on appetite suppression and gastric emptying. And even so, the combination of the GLP-1 GIP receptor agonists are really thought to be beneficial. Um, and terzepatide uh, in this class was recently approved um, for type 2 diabetes, and that was initially, but not too long ago, just a month ago, there was approval for its use in obesity as well. And these um, medications have seen um, have shown really a more robust effect on A1C and weight loss. Um, glucagon, as shown here on the right, um, also has similar properties to GLP-1 in that it will contribute to appetite suppression, slow gastric emptying, and stimulate insulin secretion. In addition, there may be contributions to other, um, uh, other things like lipolysis, increasing energy expenditure, expenditure and activating the GLP-1 receptor, and all of these together can provide metabolic production. Um, and these actions likely override the more commonly known action of glucagon, which would be to actually increase glucose production. So retitrutide um, is a triple action agonist taking advantage of all three of these, GLP-1, GIP, and glucagon. Um, and these agents have been shown a, shown a reduction in A1C of about 2% and a mean weight loss of about 17 kilograms. So really more to come on these medications. So with weight gain, um, we must understand different fat depots. Subcutaneous adipose tissue, or SAT, is thought of as the pinchable fat on the surface. Some subcutaneous fat is healthy and necessary for the essential role of storing triglycerides, but this is an important point that either having too little SAT or too much SAT can lead to metabolic consequences. Um, and when either of these situations present, um, um, it could be that the triglycerides then overflow into um, the visceral adipose tissue or VAT depot. And VAT accumulates in and around the abdomen and viscera it's highly inflamed and leads to metabolic complications. So in HIV-associated lipodystrophy, we may see a low-SAT, high-VAT phenotype. And the ideal strategy for this patient would be to reduce fat while preserving SAT, as you do not want to reduce the SAT any further. Um, Tisamorelin is an FDA-approved medication for HIV-associated lipodystrophy. It preferentially reduces VAT and preserves SAT as desired here. Whereas in obesity, you may see a high SAT, high VAT phenotype. The ideal strategy in obesity would be to reduce VAT and, and SAT, however. And so in this regard, the GLP-1-RAs may be effective as a target reduction in both depots. 
So with regards to weight loss derived from these medications, it's further important to understand how different components of body composition are being affected, namely fat versus lean mass. And with the use of contemporary ART, the HIV population is aging and the prevalence of frailty is really increasing. And we think of sarcopenia in these individuals as well. So in this way, the ideal clinical strategy in HIV would be to preserve lean body mass. In the step one trial of semaglutide versus placebo, an exploratory analysis showed that semaglutide reduced total fat mass by 19%, regional VAT by about 27%, and total lean mass by about 10%. However, they noted that the um, proportion of total lean mass relative to total body mass actually increased by three percentage points. So moreover, what they saw really was that um, there was increasing improvement of the lean to fat mass ratio um, with increasing weight loss, um, thus suggesting that while there was a decrease in lean mass, it was proportionately lower than the loss of fat. So now let's begin to focus on what's known about GLP-1-RAs and HIV. Um, this was a retrospective study recently presented by um, Nguyen et al. at ID Week, assessing the impact of GLP-1 initiation on weight, BMI, and A1C. This was a large study of about over 200 individuals. Multiple preparations of the GLP-1-RAs were included. The majority were um, on semaglutide, um, and the mean duration of use was about 15 months. Um, baseline characteristics are shown here. They were on various ART regimens, the majority on INSTEs, and there was also increased metabolic comorbidities as shown on the right, with over half of the patients having diabetes, hypertension, or dyslipidemia. The mean weight reduction um, on follow-up was about 5.4 kilograms. The mean BMI reduction was about two points, and the A1C fell mildly. Um, and while we saw some benefit, I really think the full potential of the medicine wasn't reflected necessarily in this data as only 41% of those um, who, were, who were studied were achieved the maximum dosing. Further analysis showed about a quarter of patients have more than 5% weight loss. Um, about a fifth of these patients transitioned from the obese to the overweight category. And factors that they saw associated with um, weight gain included a higher baseline BMI and a longer duration of treatment. And they did see that uh, dulaglutide was associated with a decreased odds of having a greater than 5% weight loss. And this is no different from what we've seen in prior studies assessing um, the efficacy of different GLP-1 RAs. So this retrospective study was recently presented at IAS 2023 by Lloyd et al, in which they assessed the impact of GLP-1 RAs on metabolic outcomes um, in persons with uh, diabetes and HIV. Um, compared to those with diabetes alone. There are about 45 individuals um, in this group. Um, they showed that uh, persons with HIV and diabetes had significantly greater weight loss compared to persons with diabetes alone. The mean weight reduction was uh, 10 kilograms in those with diabetes and HIV compared to uh, two kilograms in those with diabetes alone. And this translated to about a mean reduction of eight versus minus 1.5% respectively. Uh, there was also a trend towards a greater reduction in A1C among those with diabetes and HIV, though this tended not to be significant. And these data begin to suggest to us increased efficacy in HIV, 
but this really needs to be investigated further in prospective studies. So Grace McConzie um, recently shared her results at ID Week 2023 from the first GLP-1RA study in HIV conducted as a randomized controlled trial, um, placebo-controlled, and it was really um, quite exciting um, to see the results. The study included persons with HIV who were overweight and had increased waist circumference. Um, they were selecting for those with a lipohypertrophy phenotype among those with obesity. Um, and uh, these individuals received subcutaneous semaglutide um, versus placebo at a full dose for 24 weeks. Their primary endpoint was to evaluate changes in uh, VAT using CT and other endpoints um, included various measures of body composition. And so we can see here that um, there was a weight reduction of 8% versus a 0.2% increase in placebo with semaglutide in the leftmost graph. And about 65% um, of individuals on semaglutide um, achieved a greater than 5% weight loss. And in the middle graph here, we see that the, in the semaglutide group, there was a 13% reduction in VAT versus a 5% increase in placebo. And for comparison, this amount of VAT reduction is really similar to cisamarelin. And on the right here, we see that among the semaglutide group, there was a 13% reduction in SAT and a 1.5% increase in the placebo group. So these data really highlight that weight loss with semaglutide is being driven by both SAT and VAT reduction. The study went on to look at changes in fat and lean mass, and there were both fat and lean mass losses in the semaglutide group, though for every 1% of lean mass reduction, the semaglutide group lost 2.4% um, um, fat mass. So again, we see that there may have been an overall net benefit to fat loss while sustaining some lean mass loss. And with regards to other um, ectopic fat depots, there was no improvement in pericardiolipid fat or liver fat. And overall, there was excellent adherence to the medication. Study-related AEs were similar between both groups. Another ongoing study called the SWIFT study will provide more insight. In this study, patients will be randomized to semaglutide with lifestyle or lifestyle alone in an open label design. And aside from body weight, they'll look at other um, interesting measures such as inflammation, immune um, function, and the gut microbiome, which will be quite interesting to see. So this brings us to our pretest question number one, GLP-1 receptor agonists affect body composition by the correct answer is C, reducing visceral fat, reducing subcutaneous fat, and reducing lean body mass. Um, both studies of HIV and non-HIV, as we have re reviewed, have shown that weight loss from these medications result in reductions in all three depots. And though the studies seem to point to more, relatively more fat versus lean mass loss, it is still critical to understand how the different components of body composition may be affected by these medications, because preservation of the SAT or subcutaneous fat or the lean mass may be ideal in some clinical phenotypes as we reviewed, such as lipoatrophy and frailty in contrast to those with diabetes. So GLP-1-RAs are not expected to pose any significant drug interactions via their metabolism. They're degraded by endopeptidases as part of their mechanism, um, they are known to inhibit gastric acid secretion by about 20% and delay gastric emptying by about 25 minutes. 
So two potential ARTs of note are atazanavir and oral ripivirine, as they may be affected by ele elevated gastric pH. These changes in uh, gastric pH, um, or these changes in gastric acid secretion emptying are relatively small though. And therefore GLP-1 RAs are really thought to have minimal effect on these medications. In any case, you may want to advise that your GLP-1 RAs are taken four hours before these two medications in particular. So we've discussed the benefits of GLP-1-A's for diabetes, um, weight loss, and even cardiovascular disease. Well, there may be even further benefits that have clinical relevance to other key non-communicable diseases that are rising in prevalence. Um, indeed, we know that persons with HIV are at risk for fatty liver disease, which can progress to non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, which can then result in liver fibrosis. So this RCT um, evaluated participants with a BMI greater than 25, with no history of diabetes, and biopsy-confirmed NASH. Um, they were randomized to somatotide versus placebo. And what they saw was that somatotide really resulted in a significantly higher percentage of individuals with resolution of NASH versus the placebo group. And they were seven times more likely to have resolution of NASH um, without any worsening of liver fibrosis, which is very interesting. So obesity has been linked to the development of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HEFPEF. And there's, this is also rising in prevalence um, with myocardial dysfunction in HIV, which may lead to HEFPEF. Um, the STEP HEFPEF trial enrolled those individuals with obesity and known HEFPEF and randomized them to semaglutide versus placebo. Semaglutide here led to larger reductions in symptoms and physical limitations as shown by um, a change in the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire and there were greater improvements in exercise function as shown here by the six minute walk test. Um, and as, as would be expected, there was greater weight loss. Um, however, the study was not powered to evaluate clinical events such as hospitalization from heart failure. And really further studies are needed to understand its full potential in myocardial dysfunction and HEPPEF. There may also be a role for GLP-1-RAs in addictive disorders. Um, although known as a gut hormone, GLP-1 is also produced in the brainstem and is released as a neurotransmitter. Um, there are receptors for GLP-1 in the regions of the brain that are involved in reward and addiction, and this may in fact modulate dopamine. So preclinical research has identified um, potent reductions in substance use and attenuation of drug-seeking behaviors with several different GLP-1-RAs. And this has mainly been seen in rodent models. You can see here that the data has shown that GLP-1-RAs suppress motivation to consume alcohol, alcohol-seeking behaviors, relapse drinking and withdrawal symptoms, may suppress nicotine intake and reward, decrease opioid-seeking and withdrawal symptoms, decrease cocaine and amphetamine reward, and decrease cocaine intake. Um, now, these are really preliminary studies. Um, there aren't really many clinical studies that have been performed. There's one study that showed a, um, that was done in alcohol use disorder, which suggested that these medications reduce alcohol consumption in a cohort with obesity. But rigorous studies are really needed to test um, these medications. And with that, we'll end on our um, pre-test question two. 
Um, GLP-1 receptor agonists have, been sho have shown several potential off-target um, effects. Which of the following has been demonstrated in randomized controlled trials? So here, the correct answer is A. As we reviewed, the select trial evaluated cardiovascular outcomes among those with obesity without diabetes and demonstrated a 20% risk reduction in the semaglutide versus placebo um, evaluation. The SELECT trial enrolled only those with pre-existing cardiovascular disease. And again, uh, we don't know the benefit to those without known cardiovascular disease at this time. Um, but we will hopefully learn more with upcoming studies. <laughs> the STEP-FPEF trial was not powered to assess heart failure events, as we just reviewed. And preclinical studies have investigated GLP-1-RAs to reduce addiction disorders and have shown preliminary benefits. But really, we need human studies to thoroughly investigate these medications. And with that, I would like to take any questions at this time. Fabulous review, uh, Simon. Really just great, especially for those of us who are not endocrinologists and um, uh, but yet we see a lot of these issues with obesity and metabolic disorders. Thank you. Um, I just want to start with a question about uh, the terzepatide. Um, that's the one that just recently got approved for weight loss as opposed to diabetes only. Um, it had, if I saw correctly, a 16 to 24 kilogram, not pound, reduction in weight, which is just striking. How do you choose when to use uh, that drug versus just semaglutide? Right, great question. So that is actually um, just hot off the press with that terzepatide, the dual agonist um, medication in which there was a more potent weight reduction and A1C reduction. So really, <laughs> if I'm speaking like retrospectively, we didn't really have that in our sort of artillery to um, use to prescribe to patients. And we were limited to the GLP-1s. And with regards to weight loss, the menu, which you would have looked at, you would have been able to prescribe either semaglutide or loraglutide. And if I were to choose between those two, I would really, you know, we all see the data and see that semaglutide has a more potent weight loss effect. So that really becomes one of the first line in the GLP-1s. And if, you know, um, for some reason, you know, it's not available or, you know, oftentimes patients are limited by what's available on their drug formulary as well through their insurance, which has been, a, you know, quite a problem with getting these medications for our patients who really need them. Um, then loraglutide is, you know, an alternative to that. Now with this new medication that has come across with more potent weight reduction, I think you're going to see sort of a transition in um, patients really moving towards this medication. But the one caveat here is that we don't know enough about these new dual agonists yet. I presented data today on sort of the benefits of the GLP-1s. We see that there's great cardiovascular mortality that has been shown in the diabetes population, um, in the or, sorry, in the obesity and diabetes population. Um, in the diabetes population, we know there's also a nephropathy benefit. I mean, I think there will be studies that'll start to elucidate that in obesity as well. So in thinking about terzepatide, we, you know, we don't understand sort of the full benefit. I anticipate there will be a benefit, but we don't know that just yet. So perhaps, you know, if I'm thinking about our population who are at risk, higher risk for heart disease, and I don't know the CV benefit yet, 
um, you know, I may still choose to use a GLP-1. Um, however, you know, that'll be taken into consideration <laughs> uh, with, you know, side effects and how patients are able to tolerate the medication. That has also limited their use as well. Right. And I think you just answered one of the questions that came in, just talking about the distinction between semaglutide and liraglutide. And the semaglutide is a little bit more potent as far as weight loss, right? Yeah. The other thing I want to point out about that, and it was in the chart and we didn't go through all the nuances, is that semaglutide is a once weekly injection. However, liraglutide is a daily injection. So that might also, um, you know, um, in, in your discussions with your patient, um, you know, um, may affect what you're going to prescribe. Um, but if thinking about potency, semaglutide, and then also taking into consideration what's available to the patient. Right. Dr. Mazur, any questions or comments? No, it's impressive how many different options we're getting now to reduce risk for various uh, comorbidities or complications of HIV. One of the things you mentioned in terms of a uh, uh, complication, you mentioned diarrhea, you mentioned pancreatitis. How important is a 10% loss in lean body mass? Is that functionally important? Yeah, so that's such a, you know, that's such an important question. I don't think we know the full repercussions of, you know, the lean mass loss loss in these patients. And while, um, you know, there is the idea that there is a 10% lean mass, I think the important sort of um, nuance that came out of this is in proportion to your body weight, you still, you're actually increasing the amount of lean body mass. It's a subtle nuance. So because, you know, there's such a shift in all the body composition, you know, having an absolute, um, you know, change in 10%, that may not be the whole story because there's a relative increase perhaps in whole body proportion. And I think we need studies that are ongoing right now to help us elucidate that. But something we should definitely be mindful of in our population that's aging. And what what are the most serious adverse effects? I mean, you mentioned pancreatitis. Are any of these complications life threatening uh, or require hospitalization, or are they just annoying? Yeah. So pancreatitis, great. So you know, these can be severe in nature. I think we tend not to um, offer these medications to patients that have a prior history of pancreatitis um, because we don't want to, um, you know, um, exacerbate a future episode. Now there's newer studies actually that are coming out suggesting that there shouldn't be such a contraindication that there may be in fact benefit and we don't actually see increased episodes of pancreatitis. But, um, you know, you can, you know, if someone has recurrent pancreatitis, they've already had so much damage to their pancreas that, you know, any, any additional insult um, can be quite harmful and, you know, can also predispose them to development of diabetes down the line. Great. So Thanks. comment, there's a couple, I'll call it landmines in the way of trying to navigate access to these drugs. One of which is this one question says that New York Medicaid doesn't cover some of them, covers others. We've been seeing short supply, uh, manufacturers not keeping up with demand. Um, how are you navigating, especially the the negotiating what formulary drug is uh, of which uh, insurance plan, et cetera? Yeah, it's been extremely difficult. I mean, this is a challenge we've been facing, not just, you know, for, you know, it's been a while now in which there's been such a shortage and patients haven't been able to get their medication on it. 
Um, you know, I think um, with trying to get the medication approved, I think stating the, the nature of why the patient needs it, they really need to meet the indications for the medicine. And I go on to write a letter uh, sort of, um, you know, really pointing to, you know, the benefit that may occur for this patient if they have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease and other comorbidities to really show that they need this medication. But again, even if the, um, even if the insurance company improves it, really we're limited by the supply and that really needs to um, increase. Now, now that may be one advantage to these other, you know, dual agonists and triple sort of agonists coming out is that when we have more variety to choose from, that'll increase supply as well, um, which will be an advantage, um, I think. Um, but yeah, I think, um, you know, I think with things, I think with the Medicare, Medicaid, that hopefully will change also. That is quite the struggle because yeah. they don't allow for weight loss um, then, therapies. Yeah. And that's been the history with most new drugs that come out a little bit expensive. And over time, the prices get uh, lowered and uh, or at least the access gets easier. Um, somebody who's had bariatric surgery, uh, but let's see, they're a sleeve or, or has actually had a stomach reduction procedure. Um, the slowness of gastric emptying, is there any particular concerns you have about using any of these GLP-1s in that setting? Great, great question. Thank you so much. Uh, so, um, so they there have been some studies actually um, evaluating GLP ones following bariatric surgery because it's thought that perhaps this can help maintain um, weight loss following bariatric surgery. Um, so, following bypass surgery, you know, um, there is some issue. There, it's very mild, but there are some issues with weight gain if individuals can't necessarily maintain. Um, the lifestyle that is needed after a bypass in terms of, um, you know, the caloric intake and, and such and, and other lifestyle changes. So um, these GLP-1s have been studied um, to help maintain weight. Um, and they've, I think they've generally been shown to be tolerated and actually be effective for, for um, maintaining weight, which has been really great. Yeah. Um, okay. Um I guess the last question here, and then I may ask you, if you don't mind, just to type in answers for the remaining couple of questions. But um, this is a pretty insightful question about uh, that the, the GLP-1 agonists uh, suppress appetite and, and also potentially abuse um, potential. Uh, some essentially mediated process that might be done through dopamine. Uh, is there a concern that this might lead to anhedonia or depression? I, I didn't see depression as a common side effect. Yeah. So I think this is, I mean, this is a great point. There's a lot of, you know, um, studies that, you know, need to be done to understand these medications. But actually, so some of the, there's more preclinical data, I will say on this. And actually the GLP-1s, there's a body of literature that actually shows that they may improve um, depression and psychiatric disorders and actually improve cognitive disorders. Um, and that is, you know, again, speaking to the broad potential, but I will say that's juxtaposed against there was, you know, there is an ongoing investigation evalu evaluating these medications and their associated suicide risk um, because um, this was brought up through the Icelandic Medical uh, Medicines Agency that they saw um, you know, a large number of cases of suicide. They, I think they had over 100 cases and the EMA um, started investigating whether suicide is a potential risk with medications. 
They um, reported some preliminary findings just last month in November. Um, they didn't see a causal association, but they will release another report in April 2024 speaking to this. So hopefully we'll learn more about this because we'll need to counsel our patients if so. Well, thank you again so much. It almost feels like I want to ask, will it cure your asthma too? Uh, but we'll we'll just suffice with what it's already been shown to do. Um, Suma, great presentation, really dynamic uh, review of a emerging game-changing therapy for folks. Um, and and uh, we're very grateful for your time and appreciate your uh, getting to the last couple of questions with typed answers. Um, we have about uh, 13 minutes of break and then we'll come back and Dr. Mazur will lead the second half of our uh, webinar and uh, and we'll now just sort of sign off for about another 12.45 minutes. Yeah, we'll look forward to everybody being back on time. <laughs>